coming to the ending of a day. Conventionally speaking, this is uh, the end of five, five full days and nights since we started this retreat. A bit over halfway. Just, uh, just reflecting how those thoughts resonate in the heart. There's a big whoopee. <laughs> Only three days, four hours and seventeen minutes to go. <laughs> or whether there's an extra panic that we've got to work harder to hurry up, get more insights under our belt. Just, just reflecting on time, reflecting on all the moments that happened today that seemed so real, so solid so intensely me. Maybe being the exhausted one or the one lost in doubt being born into the hell realm of uh, just pain that seems never ending. And in the panic, panicky conviction that I just can't take another instant. All those moments can, many of them can seem so real where we're born into states of anguish or born into states of deep peace. Many of us have laughed about it in the interview when we reflected back on uh, moments as that and said, well, I thought I had it cracked then. Yeah, I I just remembered when I was... uh, uh, somewhere during my monastic life, maybe 10 years into it, we were doing a winter retreat. It was a month or maybe two months, I can't remember. A very intensive practice, getting up at four and uh, practicing through the day, late into the night. I remember pushing myself really hard and... Uh, a lot of work with the sound of silence and subtle sensation and all kinds of things happening. And I remember being quite ill in those days too and, and doing walking meditation and being quite exhausted and there was a bench out in front of Chithurst's house and I just I just was exhausted so I decided to, to pause for a bit and sit on the bench. And in that moment of relaxation, just in the moment of relaxation, 
just at that instant of letting go, this black cat jumped right to my right side. And uh, as if a cosmic hand reached under my right ribcage near where the liver is, this tremendous bone-shaking jerk. And something, I don't know what, came out of my ribs into the cat. The cat ran off. And, and this explosion of uh, the sound of silence, and the sound of it just went huge. Unending. And I saw all these flowers dropping out of the sky. <laughs> and I mean talk about bliss it was bliss number one it was a, very nice to have whatever it was out of my rib cage I was <laughs> momentarily concerned about the cat <laughs> but but this just and the, the sound of silence was so powerful so loud so big <laughs> there was no way to get a thought in there or it's hard to get many thoughts in there. It was just bliss. But even though I didn't think I could get a thought in there, I got a thought in there. And I thought, uh, this is it. Congratulations. <laughs> bliss as I stood up off the bench. Bliss as I walked in toward the house. Bliss, as I reflected, might as well tell my teacher. <laughs> Bliss, as I started walking into the reception room where he was sitting. Bliss, as I noticed that he was talking to another monk. Bliss, as I couldn't help but overhear their conversation. Then, not sure what happened to the bliss just yet, but I started noticing one of the monks was worrying that he broke one of the rules around sexuality. I was kind of wondering whether he had broken these rules, and there's a very intense kind of uh, reflection on how you use your sexual energy as a monk. And I'm listening to this monk kind of thinking about his doubts, and then I start thinking, gosh, I wonder if I've, I've broken that rule. And then in about uh, 10 seconds, I decided to wisely, kind of quietly make my way out of the room and withhold my proclamation of unshakable deliverance. <laughs> and all these experiences from bliss to, to hell to the to the wall to the boredom, where do they go? They seem so Repellent, utterly repellent, or utterly intoxicating, or utterly boring. And this, and this tendency to, to fix it as a, as a possession, as proof that I'm enlightened, or proof that I'm worthless. When they are what they are, I, mean, I enjoy that. I mean, it's some Find enough experience, nothing wrong with the experience, blissful experience. What, what is this having to kind of move out and, and, and possess an experience, own it, and then generate a whole sense of who we are dependent upon that? 
is what's called becoming. This, this, this movement, which is unconscious, which is shrouded in not, not truly, clearly seeing, generates birth. The Buddha called it upadana, which gives rise to becoming. Upadana literally means to climb onto. We climb onto a condition. Whether it's bliss, or perhaps if it's uh, despair. And in climbing on that condition, that then, then there's becoming, which is like identifying with it, getting so close to it that there's a sense of being that. That is mine or me. And in that instant then, we've, we've ensured the death experience. Because when there's birth, there's death. And why? What, why does there have to be death? Well, what have we climbed onto? We've been noticing in our, in our reflection, has anyone found a condition that can, one can see, either with the physical eye or the inner eye? Or a condition that one can hear, either with the physical ear or even the inner, inner sound, inner thoughts, inner sound. Has anyone found any, any touch or taste or smell? A perception that's, that's unchanging. As our samadhi, as our power of presence uh, grows, then, then what is revealed is just how quickly things are changing, how fast things are changing. Being born and dying, born and dying, born and dying, born and dying. When one, when one has that quality of presence of mind to, to feel the energetics of the body, one, one can actually feel the vibration. How, how bubbly it is. Ephemeral it is. Or even if one doesn't, doesn't have, uh, Great Samadhi. One can even just hear the sound, the sound of, uh, of my voice. These words. I mean, try grasping it. The sound is there and it's so ephemeral. And it, it's gone. And yet, we can make it seem like such a thing. I can feel suicidal sometimes if I think, God, that was a terrible talk. Just couldn't, couldn't do it. Get puffed up because I think it was a great talk. Making a talk into a thing. Dukkha is imagining that there are things, that there are things that are entities, that are separate. Yet, when wisdom starts to illuminate the nature of things, one realizes that actually they're just processes. These are shifting. So when there's uh, taking birth, 
when that moment that we've taken birth, when what we've taken birth in, whether it's a, a form, a possession, a mood, a situation, then as it becomes otherwise, there's a sense of shaking, sense of danger, sense of having to protect, maintain that whole stress. naturally emerges because of birth. And we've been reflecting on that, that, that process, that, that, uh, that grasping process, or that rejecting process. Whether it's rejecting or grasping, it's part of the same sort of energy. Desire or the desire to get rid of. We've been reflecting on that as the, the, the origin of Dukkha, origin of suffering. We've been reflecting today on, on what happens, what happens when one truly abandons that in a moment. What happens when there really isn't adding on to the moment a demand for it to freeze, a demand for it to be otherwise. What happens if there, if there is just being with how it is? Because there's no trying to possess what's unpossessable, then there isn't the shaking. Conditions continue to tremble because that's the nature of conditions. Conditions, the conditions, all those experiences that we had today have, have arisen and then dissolved back into this, this awesome presence. Those myriad experiences have arisen and dissolved, arisen and dissolved, all within this present moment. Even right now, all sorts of birth and death, all sorts of creations with the beat of the heart, the breath, the tingling of the cells, the sounds, the thoughts, all the things that we're having. So much is moving, but does that mean our experience has to be hectic? It's also possible to be at peace with the movement. when there's not grasping at the movement, rejection of the movement. All kind of views and opinions about how it should be. So the Buddha taught that all conditioned dharmas, all dharmas which are conditioned, you and I are all conditioned because our mother and father came together, we were born. It's what we call being conditioned by, if we don't take in-breath, in this form we call ours. If we stop breathing, then it, it dies. We stop eating for too long. We stop drinking for too long. Different conditions bring this form together we call ours. Different conditions bring the evening that we call now. Every form, every sound, every feeling, every perception is a condition, something that comes and goes. The Buddha taught all conditioned dharmas are like dreams, like illusions, like bubbles, like shadows, like dewdrops in a lightning flash. Contemplate them thus. 
a dream seems so real in the midst of it, and then and then it it seems so real, and then and then when we go back, where is it now? A lightning flash is there, so brilliant, and then it's gone. A bubble, so amazing, so awesome, so beautiful, and yet in an instant one can't find any trace left. Shadow, a shadow. We can be frightened by a shadow. It might seem to be a horrible shadow. We might give it all kinds of qualities. But what independent reality is there in a shadow? The shadow is there because a light source is moving through something else and there's that shadow. It's dependent upon other conditions. It doesn't have an isolated thingness about it. And when conditions shift, the shadow shifts. Do. Millions of lovely jewels, dewdrops in the morning, beautiful. Conditioned. And when the light comes, the heat comes, the day comes, the dew evaporates. All conditioned dharmas are like dreams, illusions, bubbles, shadows, like dewdrops in a lightning flash. Contemplate them thus. Thus. Learning to to bring a quality of thusness into our day. A quality of, what is thus? It's like this, thisness. It's like this. Noticing so much of our relationship to phenomenon is, is through, as I spoke earlier this morning, about papuncha, this conceptual proliferation, this misleading nature of thought to to imply a kind of solidity and thingness about everything, about me, about you, about him, about her, about tomorrow, about yesterday. And that these, the way that we tack on to everything, all these concepts, misleads us into thinking that those concepts really are telling us the ultimate nature of things. As we've been exploring, thought can be very useful, but thought directs the mind. It guides the mind. But if we're asking thought to ultimately tell us who we are, it's like asking a bubble to tell us our true nature. You're wonderful, Pop. (laughs) I fooled you. You're horrible. Mm. Pop. And to, to explore the how many of our relationships, we don't really relate to the world or each other. We just see through the prism of these concepts, these ideas about ourselves and about others. As we bring thusness into, into our relationship with how things are, as we've started on this retreat, to start to bring thusness. Remember we talked about the primary relationship that we're cultivating, learning to actually be with the suchness, the thusness, the as-isness, the truth of our body, of our breath, of walking, of seeing, of suffering, even to honor. By talking this way, we're not, we're not putting down the transiency, the conditions. We want to honor it for what it really is. doesn't honor things to just hold on to all kinds of imaginations about how they are. 
and then get feel betrayed when conditions don't live up to what we felt they should be. As we start to contemplate this changing nature, and then we really see how quickly things are changing, then it, it becomes obvious that the change in and of itself is not a problem, but it's, it's, it's trying to possess it is dukkha. Wanting a bubble to permanently satisfy us. So the Buddha described the worldly winds as, as things that blow. They shift and change. That's what they're supposed to do. Success and failure come and go. They do. Ah, he's just saying that. He had success after success. Did he? A lot of his talks were flops. They were great talks, but who a lot of people didn't understand it. He had all kind of schisms in the order, people kind of fighting each other, people trying to kill him, people saying he was useless. He experienced being praised, he experienced being criticized. He experienced pleasure, he also experienced pain when his first cousin went a bit off, got a bit puffed up because he had some samadhi. Thought he should be running the order. Said, "Why don't you retire, Buddha? I'll take it. Take it from here." <laughs> and the Buddha said, "I'm not ready to retire, and I wouldn't give it to you anyway." <laughs> and he went off and uh, tried to kill the Buddha. Pushed a big rock down a mountain. Broke the Buddha's toe. The Buddha experienced pain. A lot of pain. But what did he do with the pain? He reflected, it is pain. Didn't add anything to it. He could have gone, oh gosh, how could my first cousin do this to me? The humiliation. He knew it. contemplating it thus and, and the pain is not near as bad as we imagine it to be when we don't want it to be when we add all kinds of stuff to it about what I can and can't take how it should be we actually create so much more pain than the pain that actually is we create from my experience I create mountains of pain about how it should be and how it shouldn't be I've actually had a lot of pain in the last 20 years. And it's not what I would have chosen in sitting down for the next 20 years and kind of worked out that I was going to have a lot of pain. It was not on my list. On my list of practice, I was, I was uh, once I'd become a monk, I was going to go for it like a good American. <laughs> my wrestling coach told me, Son, if you don't go for it, you'll never get anything. And so that was good. I mean, he, he inspired us to strive. And uh, so I worked out. I got high enough on my first 10-day retreat that I calculated that you can do that in 10 days. Let's figure, let's see. 10 is about 30 tens in a year, give or take a little bit. 30 times that is a good space. And I figured one year, two years max, I could wrap up this thing. 
I was sort of hoping when I first went to Thailand that the, the great master would, you know, make it a little easier. And I thought if they just kind of tapped you on the head, that would be nice. Just kind of zapped you. So I was still holding out for that, which would even be faster than two years. But uh, I got to Thailand and uh, met Ajahn Shah and uh, someone else was interviewing and he, he uh, asked me why I'd come and I... I had done, you know, a 10-day retreat. <laughs> and, uh, and I said something or other about wanting to find something or other. About, I think something about balance or peace or something. And he asked me if I knew how to meditate, and I thought that was a good, because I'd just done this retreat. And so I started explaining to him that I knew how to meditate, and he kind of looked, and I sort of felt a little funny, but I kept talking. <laughs> And then he got down on the, on the floor like a dog and started sniffing around. <laughs> and he started saying things in Thai and everybody was laughing under his hut and I wasn't, and I said, Doug, could you translate? But everyone was enjoying laughing so much that I didn't get a translation until later. And uh, Doug finally said, well, Arjun Shah is not impressed with your meditation. He says, you're, you're sniffing around, running all over the place. And he said, you know, don't make it too difficult. Even if you know one thing really well, you'll understand everything. He said, even if you understand your breath, you'll understand everything. Even though normally I don't like being laughed at, somehow being laughed at by Jin Cha felt like a privilege. It was it was done in a kindly way. And then he kind of brushed me off and said, "Oh, go be with Samado. That was the senior Western monk. He said he'll teach you how to be a monk." And as we've been contemplating what looks like the breath, whether we have views about it being boring or exciting or whatever, as we've contemplated it, as we've started to see this this changing nature. And we learn to become thus, thus with the breath. Can we get a feeling for just how ephemeral, how dreamlike? The in-breath seems so real, then it's the out-breath. The out-breath seems so real, then it's the in-breath. Can we claim it? Breathe in forever? Breathe out forever? It's obvious that one can enjoy it, or witness it, or appreciate it, or receive it, but to own it, what does that mean? And so it is said that when we understand change, when we understand the dukkha of thinking we can freeze things, then we start to understand anatta, we start to understand that things are not, they're not really our possessions, they're not who and what we are. They are just what they are, they're thus, they're like this. They're empty, what's called empty. They're empty of what we thought it was. But it still is what it is. It's not saying there's nothing. It's said like a dream, like a bubble. It is what it is. We can still honor what it is. But honoring what it is requires us to be very present, very compassionate. 
if we take these emptiness teachings as, as just kind of put down of all that is, is changing, then we don't really know emptiness. We just know numbness. We know avoidance. Emptiness is being spacious enough, enough to allow the suchness of the moment to be felt, to be seen, to be recognized. And we realize that it's very effervescent, arising and ceasing within, within a spaciousness, within a presence, within a stillness. When we're beguiled by the nature of concepts, beguiled by the idea of ownership and rejection, then the heart is obscured because the mind is so riveted on objects. We don't know the Buddha, don't know the presence as we've been cultivating a sense of sustained presence, learning to be with change, we start to get a feeling for that which knows, that which knows the way it is, that which knows the Dhamma. And today we've been, we've been exploring, highlighting an aspect of, of that which knows, that in, in working with the out-breath, in working with relaxing, in working with the dying, the dying of thought, the dying of the breath, and, and learning not to be so fixated on the form, but to become more able to trust in presence that receives the form, that knows the form, beginning to highlight the peaceful aspect of the moment, the underlying aspect of the moment, the cool aspect of the moment what's called the undying or the unconditioned aspect of this moment, which is missed. It's missed when one's focused on the wave. One misses the fact that the wave is rooted in depth. And actually, we don't need to go to some faraway place, some special moment to, to contact this, this peaceful nature. As we've been chanting every mo- morning when we reflect on the qualities of Dhamma, notice we chant the words, this wonderful Dhamma, this wonderful nature of things. This sandittiko is always apparent. Always apparent. A kaliko, it's not bound in time. It's not, though it's an awesome moment, the, the eclipse, and I was blown away. Wonderful. The Buddha didn't say you can only realize the Dhamma at the eclipse. A kaliko, not just on the mountaintop. A kaliko, not just on the sixth, seventh, eighth day of the retreat. It's timeless. The true nature of things is ahi pasiko, always beckoning. Ahi means come, pasiko means to see. The true nature is always inviting us if we just open our eyes to open to the thusness of this moment. Now, the thusness of this moment, if we honor the thusness, it might be right after lunch. What's the thusness of the heavy feeling? Oh, I couldn't be here. And we think, oh, once I really digest this and rest some and then I'll be able to get to the hall and really get back. 
can we open to the thusness of that becoming, that skipping over, that movement to the future that keeps us from noticing the as-isness of heaviness, being in a hurry, having the conviction that somehow it's not here. Can we see the changing nature, the empty nature? It still will be what it is, but empty of whatever else we add on to it with all kinds of preconceptions. The emptiness of, of being able to receive the moment, recognize the spaciousness within all the form and all the feeling, just as it is. So it is said, Vimutti Sarasabe Dhamma. The Buddha taught that the essence of freedom is at the core of all things. Sabedama means all things, all conditions, every condition, whether in pain, whether in bliss, that have as their core the, the, the peaceful nature. So the peaceful nature is here. Can we trust that enough to rest into, to allow ourselves to open to the thusness, little by little, little by little, patiently, we're learning to open to the thusness of, of the suffering, remembering the ennobling truth. And our, and our capacity, our capacity to do this deepens. At first we might be into it just to feel better. And that's a, a motivation that gets us going. We want to be happier, more peaceful. That takes us so far more powerful, more successful. But when we start to run into a little stormy water, if that's our only motivation, we we tend to go somewhere else. When our motivation deepens and there's something in us that's weary of just trying to make everything nice all the time, when something in us really wants to understand, really wants to be free from delusion, then something in us is willing, willing to, to something deep in us knows that we need to open to how life really is in its bright and its dark aspects. That's a deeper motivation. There's more power in that motivation. Because there's, there's something that's whole about that, something that's authentic about, about really being motivated to open up to how it is. But oftentimes that motivation is, is motivated also by so much suffering that we feel that we really want to get beyond it. But even that motivation, sometimes we can feel that the wall just looks too high. We just think that it's just too difficult. And Tanisra was speaking last night about how the, the desert experience or the dark night of the soul experience We can get uh, discouraged. And then I think it's also useful to, to remember that we're not, just, we're not just doing this for ourselves. The idea of ourselves being a separate self anyway is, is not really true, is it? We're all interlinked so much anyway. And if we can start to also reflect on our interconnectedness, also reflect on compassion, and we can find even a deeper, more powerful, more sustaining 
energy. That really the, the basis of the work that we're doing, we might be calling it wisdom, we might be calling it seeing things as they are. But remember that, that really actually in seeing things as they are, we're learning actually to relate, to commune with, to resonate with the suchness of the moment. That's actually what compassion is. Except compassion highlights the capacity to resonate with pain. And then the movement, the natural movement to help alleviate that. So in being able to resonate with, open to our own pain, the own suffering that is being generated by a wrong understanding, that's also a compassionate act. It helps reveal that. We help we, we learn how to how to let that go. We can also think it's very important to consider, even when we're in a terribly difficult state, to to consider, you know, we're not just doing this to get rid of it. That actually in being able to be with illness or to be with discouragement or to be with doubt, we're learning, we're developing capacity to know that energy. Capacity then to understand, understand other people who suffer. Our teacher, the, the, the Buddha, though we've been highlighting the wisdom aspects of the teaching, these whole teachings are gestures of compassion, gestures of sharing that which can help living beings recognize the disharmony, the stress, the suffering that's being generated, allowing living beings, encouraging living beings to abandon that which harms ourselves and others. We've been, we've been uh, looking at the path to peace, suffering needing to be understood, the origin of suffering needing to learn to let that be, to abandon that, the taste of peace needing to be realized, we haven't talked about it, but we've been doing it. The fourth noble truth is the path that needs to be developed. It needs to be developing this path of presence of mind, of mindfulness, of all these wholesome qualities, of learning to see things the way they are, learning to relate to the world in a compassionate, wise way. Our own Buddha took those four truths and turned each of those into an awesome vow. Our own Buddha was just like us many, many, many eons ago. He was an ordinary human being. And he met another Buddha. He had the good fortune to meet another wise being. He met Dipankara Buddha countless eons ago. In the Buddhist cosmology, there's the idea that the universe explodes and, and expands for, for countless eons, and then it gets stretched enough, and then it, it comes back together and, and collapses. And then there's a period in between the next pulse of the universe, when it, universe, when it expands and contracts. The Buddha called that an eon. In his meditation, that's what he 
solace, the nature of things. Each eon was, I mean, he used an image for a long time, some bird holding a silk cloth in its beak. If it went around a mountain and touched this mountain a, a mile high, a mile wide, a mile deep, solid stone, and just touched the silk cloth around the mountain once, once every hundred years, an eon would, would, uh, or, or that rock would be worn down faster than an eon. An eon is one expansion and contraction. So the Buddha taught that we have many countless lifetimes in an eon. Countless eons ago, he reported after his enlightenment, he met this Buddha and saw, was really touched by the radiance of this being, the peacefulness of this being, and how he could spontaneously help, encourage, and soothe, and, and heal all the problems of communities and of individuals. Help point out and, and empower living beings to truly make worthwhile changes in their hearts and in their lives. So he brought forth the, the thought in his own heart, ah, that I would like to do that. I would like to develop that. Those qualities. And the, and, and the, this is, uh, called the vows of a bodhisattva. Bodhi means awakened, sattva means being. An awakened being, a being who's intent upon awakening. But not only intent upon awakening, awakening to the peacefulness at the root of all things, awakening to freedom from heedless birth and death. But the bodhisattva resolves to help all beings, help every living being, be free from suffering, wake up. So the first noble truth, the noble truth is there is suffering. It needs to be understood. The bodhisattva, the, 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 our Buddha in a past life, resolved. Countless beings are suffering. I resolve to help all living beings. And we think, oh well, did his vow really come true? I mean, I'm suffering, where is he now? We're encountering his teaching. We're still being touched by that wave of 2,500 years ago. The second noble truth is suffering has an origin when living beings are afflicted by this deluded sense of grasping and rejection. That's the arising of suffering. The second awesome vow is that afflictions, those things that afflict living beings, jealousy and delusion and greed and hatred, worry and doubt. Afflictions are endless. I vow to cut through them. I vow to understand them all. The fourth truth, I'll come back to the third one last. The fourth truth, you know, is about the path that leads. Each of us is working a path, but each of us is finding our own path. Even though there is a path, we're finding some of us prefer the breath. Some of us prefer questioning. Some of us prefer walking. Some of us do a lot of contemplation. Some of us feel more of an affinity with getting very calm. Each of us have our own mixture of what's working for us, which is our path. The great vow of a bodhisattva is the different paths to awaking are The Dharma doors are measureless. There's so many different paths. I vow to understand them all. Not only to understand what works for me, but to little by little understand 
for all beings. The third truth, which we call the tasting nibbana, the cessation of suffering, the Bodhisattva makes that into a vow of the Buddha path is unsurpassed. I vow to realize it. And this might seem overwhelming. But isn't it marvelous, such a, such a, such a thought, a wonderful thought, to dedicate one's efforts for the welfare of the whole? But even if we think, oh, that's impossible for me, I'm going to... I'm glad the Buddha did it, but that's not for me. <laughs> that's fair enough. Let's just deal with this. And then as we start to see that this mind that's coming in that's talking about my suffering, as we start to, to see the thusness of my suffering, start to allow ourselves to let go of some things, the mind starts to get a little quieter and more peaceful. Guess what? We're quiet enough then to feel those around us. Have you noticed in the, I find these small groups so, so beautiful. You notice what happens when our mind is a little quieter, when we're not so busy just trying to impress each other. You notice how powerful it is just to receive the presence of another being, just to hear the sound of their voice, just to see the shape of their body, the way they speak, the way they talk, there's something so poignant, something so beautiful in being able to receive and then to resonate. And that's what compassion means. Karuna, the Buddhist word for compassion, means to resonate with. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate